This podcast is made possible by thousands of dedicated listeners just like you. Be a part of this powerful three-decade legacy of evangelization by visiting materdayradio.com or downloading the Hail Mary media app. And thank you for joining us on the bridge between your faith and everyday life. Bringing you a common sense and fresh perspective to creating a just society. This is Common Sense on Social Justice. You'll get equipped with the tools you need to carry out social justice right where you are. Now, here's the host of Common Sense on Social Justice, Michael Davis. And thank you so much for joining us today. I am so glad that you are able to make us on this weekly journey. Uh, Currently, uh, going through the compendium of the social doctrine of the church to understand social justice teachings from the Pontifical Council of the U.S. Catholic Bishops. Although it is Catholic-based, it is certainly universal in its approach and its awareness. Great document. Uh, And then just the ongoing weekly discussion that we get to have together on how to create a just society with what we have to work with and right where we are located. And that's the goal. And so today we're going to be talking about political authority. That is the kind of political authority that stays within natural law. And uh, we've been talking about the political community for a couple weeks. This is the third week. Hope to finish up next week with a fourth part in Chapter 8 of the Compendium so we can move on to the next uh, subjects that's discussed there. Now, if my voice gets raspy during this uh, podcast, I apologize. Uh, Here in the Pacific Northwest, especially in the Portland metro area, we are dealing with thick thick wildfire smoke today it's the middle of october and usually it's raining by now but this year it's been near 90 degrees in the middle of october and i'm cool with that i like hot weather and i i think it's great and if this is global warming so be it (laughs) because i i enjoy it but the fact is uh the wildfire smokes in october don't really have anything to do with climate change it has everything to do with uh, an individual that has set a fire in a nearby forest, it is human-caused, and um, and the authorities are, are looking for that individual as they've got camera footage of them. And so with that in mind, we're all breathing in large amounts of smoke. You can barely see across your uh, the street in your neighborhood due to the thick amount of smoke. And so if I get raspy today, uh, that's why, but I'm trying to drink lots of water. Um, so that's my excuse, and I'm sticking to it. All right, today we're going to talk about uh, political authority that stays within the natural law. We'll also be talking about what to do when political authority goes wrong. I love sports. In sports, you have boundary markers and you have rules. And what these boundary markers do is they ensure that a fair game is played and assures a good game, an orderly game. And it allows us to play the game with a sense of unity and purpose. And without those boundary markers, you have chaos. Uh, You know, so you can, in any sport, go out of bounds. And the play is over once the ball goes out of bounds or the player. I remember one time in high school, I was playing basketball. And I was good at basketball and I enjoyed playing it. But I remember this one gymnasium we played at that had the, the markers on the court for the basketball game but it also had volleyball markers on it simultaneously and i the the out of bounds 
for the volleyball and for the basketball on the sidelines was very close to each other. And I was having a hard time understanding during the game, like which one is the basketball out of bounds. And when it's easy to stand there and see it, but when you're playing, you know, to calculate that can be tricky. So one time I very casually walked out of bounds and very casually just dribbled the ball and walked out of bounds as if everything was okay. And the referee blows a whistle out of bounds. And my teammates like, what are you doing? I'm like, uh, I thought that was the volleyball one. My bad. And the rest of the game, I made sure not to make that mistake. But sometimes we need very clear boundaries so we can understand what the boundaries are that goes with relationships and with anything, and without those clear, healthy boundaries, we have chaos. And the same thing is true when it comes to political authority. God has placed boundary markers on those in leadership and authority. He's played, God has placed boundary markers on politicians and on government officials. And as long as they stay within their proper limits, then everything is okay. And we're going to talk about all kinds of subjects today. But the first thing we're going to talk about is where does political authority come from? We've touched on this, but let's go a little bit more into this. Why does political authority exist? Uh, it exists uh, because as humans, we are social by creation. We're social by creation. And because of that, as I talked about last time, then we need some way of understanding how to healthily relate to each other as humans. So it is necessary for us to relate. Society finds its proper order. Then when authority uh, uh, binds the society together in unity. And so um, when uh, authority work realizes it comes from society exists for society and its purpose is to bind that society in unity then we have a good healthy political authority uh for the church you know jesus is the head saint paul talks about in the scriptures jesus is the head and that binds everything together so the church is the body so the the church by the way being the people not the building or the, the religious structure, but rather the people are the church. Jesus is the head that binds it all together in unity, just like the, the human head binds the body together. And as Jesus was about to leave the earth, he places Peter in charge of that body. And so today we have the Pope, and the Pope's job is to continue that binding effect on the church. Now, I will talk a little bit later how to deal with authority that goes out of bounds, so be patient with that. As the compendium shows us, political leadership comes from humans and from the Creator. It does not come from itself nor exist for itself. So if you are a politician, happen to be listening to this podcast, understand you do not come from yourself and exist for yourself. The government does not create itself. It does not exist for itself. Political authority comes from the citizens and exists for the citizens. God has determined that it is necessary for us as human beings to have leadership and that it must come organically from the people it serves. It does not come from majority vote, force, popular opinion, and so on. <clears throat> 
And those of you that want to scream and yell really loud what your opinions are, I'm sorry, but your screaming and yelling and your supposed popular opinion does not inform us how the leadership is to be. Leadership is to be based upon principle, okay, and not on popular opinion. Uh, leadership derives its existence from the people. And here's a beautiful balance. And let's look at the beautiful balance that exists in creation when it comes to political authority. And there is a balance built into society by the creator. And here it is. You have the political leadership that provides stability and order to society Okay, so leadership provides stability and order to society, while on the other hand, guaranteeing freedom for the individual and both working for the common good. So here you have it. Leadership keeps the individual in check. And the individual keeps leadership in check and together working for the common good, they keep each other on the right path. So you see the balance that exists there. Political leadership, healthy political leadership, keeps the individual in check so that they remain ordered within society. But the individual, having the freedom guaranteed by the political authority, then uses that freedom to keep the political authority in check so that they do not go out of bounds. And together, as they work for the common good, then they remain on the right path. So there's all these checks and balances built into creation when we are in alignment with creation. And we'll talk more again uh, on this next time when we discuss next time what type of political authority we should adopt. There's different structures of government, and we'll talk next time on that as we finish out this mini-series on Chapter 8 in the Compendium. Now, let, to give you an example, in a just society, if government imposes an unjust fine on an individual or business or imposes unjust taxes— then the individual citizen or group of citizens can simply refuse to pay it. What would government do if we suddenly just said this fine is unjust and these taxes are unjust, we're not paying it. Thus confronting the government and saying, I'm not paying this unjust tax or fine. What's happening is citizens are acting in a very healthy way and keeping the political authority in check. That's, by the way, why there's been so many martyrs in history. The martyrs realize that the, the limits on the government is, the, is that the government only can go so far they can only kill my body, but they cannot affect my soul. Therefore, I am willing to die for principle and what's the government going to do? Because once they kill me, then I'm definitely not paying the unjust taxes or fine because I'm not alive to pay it. So see, there is, that's a limit that's been put on the government is that they can do nothing more than kill the body. They cannot force a person into unjust practices. And that's why there were so many martyrs in the Roman Empire. There were millions and millions of people said, we're not 
going to cooperate with the empire and were willing to die. And then once the gover- the Roman Empire m- murdered these people and executed them, then the people were no longer alive to uh, cooperate with the empire. So the empire actually does not have the authority to and the ability to force people against their will. They just don't have that because their death creates a hard boundary that governments cannot cross when it comes to a soul. Now, with that in mind, let's talk about universal law. Because you have what's called laws that are imposed by governments, and then you have universal law, which is imposed by the creator. And governments cannot override the creator, try as they might. Many governments have attempted to override the creator only to find themselves collapsing. So, you know, the creator will not be uh, outdone. Uh, Universal law is something that you have to understand. We are all required to follow universal law, but we are not required to follow government mandated rules. And let's talk about this. Universal law is the natural laws built into creation. Universal laws cannot be broken. In fact, it is impossible to break a law. A law is a boundary set by the creator. But most of what we call laws are actually rules. The government cannot create any laws. Because laws cannot be broken Anything the government passes can be broken, and sometimes without consequence, as long as you don't get caught. And I've told people jokingly, I've told friends, I said, hey, uh, nothing is illegal as long as you don't get caught. And that's the truth. You can do what you want as long as you don't get caught. Why? Because government-mandated rules, which they call laws, but they're not actually laws, can actually be broken. Just... Don't get caught by the authorities, right? <clears throat> the thing is, is that, and I apologize for that. God, I love this wildfire. Uh, but, but the laws set by the creator, which are real laws, it's impossible to break them because there's always a consequence. Uh, talk more about that in a moment. Uh For example, there is no law of a speed limit. Now, there is a rule that there's speed limits, but rules can be broken without consequences. For example, I can break the speed limit and suffer no consequences as long as there's no police officer around or camera, which I despise the cameras because they're unjust and they're unconstitutional, but that's not for this podcast. However, laws cannot be broken at any time without consequence. So ask yourself this, is this a government mandated rule or a universal law set by the creator? Well, ask yourself the question, can this be broken without a consequence as long as no one's around? Well, if the answer is there's, it's impossible to break this law without a consequence, then it's a universal law. And here's some examples of universal laws. Gravity. (laughs) The law of gravity cannot be broken without a consequence Go into a tree, jump out of the tree, and tell me if you suffer a consequence. If you do, if you suffer a consequence every time, then you have experienced the unbreakable law of gravity. 
Now you may say, well, we've got rockets now that can go against gravity. Well, look, look at the force it takes. Look at the pollution rockets create. Look at the times rockets have exploded and killed people. You cannot break the law of gravity. And the only way to break the law of gravity is to get outside of gravity's reach. But then you will die because you're out of the atmosphere with no oxygen to breathe. So in other words, it's impossible to break the law of gravity. It's interesting that even the space station stays afloat right outside the Earth's atmosphere. Why? Because gravity is determining that to happen. And if you get outside the reach of gravity, you go flying through space at speeds that will kill you. Therefore, again, gravity, it's a law. The law of karma is unbreakable. Now, there's different type understandings of karma. There's a Hindu understanding. There's a Buddhist and Christian understanding and so on. But here's the basic thing. I'll talk about both sides. From the Hindu perspective of karma is that God has set the law of karma in place, which means... If you do good things, you will reap good karma and good things will come your direction, especially the good of being blessed by the creator. And if you do negative things such as murder somebody or harm another or harm the earth, then you're going to reap consequences of that. Uh, and Hindus do teach that the creator is merciful. And uh, as I read from one spiritual uh, Hindu spiritual master, he said, if, if karma, if the law of karma were to work out literally, we would all be dead. But he said, God is merciful. That's why karma doesn't kill us. But the Christian understanding is that if I sin or do something good, I will be blessed or punished in some way, even if I haven't worked it all out in this lifetime, I still go to purgatory and have to work out some things. Why? It's the Christian law of karma. And God even says in the scriptures to Moses that what if you sin, that sin is going to have a karmic effect on your children, your grandchildren, and your great-grandchildren. But I will bless you when you do good up to a thousand generations. So in other words, there, karma is a universal law. It's understood in various ways, but it's still there. You can't get out of it. If you sin, there are consequences to that. Uh, harm to your soul. If you, if you are a blessing to others, there's reward for that. And, and the funny thing is, is that sometimes bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. But that's only if you're looking at it from a human perspective that we think that way. So with that in mind, uh, I was thinking of the law of light. You know, light, God is light, and the whole universe is filled with light, and that light is penetrating. You can't get away from it. The only way you can get away from light and the law of light is to trap yourself in a concrete box. <laughs> but still, even the radioactive waves from that light penetrates into that concrete and affects you. So there's laws you cannot break without consequences. And then there's the rules of political authority that aren't actually laws. And the real role of political authority then is to ensure order and safety, right? For citizens from those who would attempt to break natural laws. Now, here's where we break it down. There are people in society who attempt to break the natural law, who attempt to do harm and to break 
laws, universal laws, without consequences. And so because of that, to ensure people's safety from those individuals and ensure order for society, government can enact rules to protect us from those people. So, for example, some of the rules that may need to be enacted is you cannot drive while intoxicated by alcohol. So no drunk driving. That's a government rule. Now, what this rule is, is an attempt by the government to break a natural law or an attempt to protect us from someone who would break a natural law or try to by foolishly hitting a person with 2,000 pounds of metal that can kill them. So here it is. The natural law states that a human body without protection cannot withstand a fast-moving metal machine driven by somebody who is intoxicated by alcohol. Therefore, driving while intoxicated is a rule. It's a rule. Now, some people, many people, actually drive while they're drunk, and they never harm anybody. But what this rule is, is an attempt to prevent someone from attempting to break the natural law uh, that says you're going, you can kill somebody with your car if you're intoxicated by alcohol. That's the natural law. So that's some examples. So we got to realize that the government doesn't have authority over natural laws. It only has the authority to try to stop those who attempt to break natural laws. But here comes the problem. The problem comes when authority goes out of bounds and becomes the law unto themselves. So here's where we really want to get into things is that is how do we deal with wrongful authority? Illegitimate government leaders, how do we deal with them? When authority goes out of bounds, we have a right to resist that authority and not to obey it. I'm going to say that again. When authority goes out of bounds, we have a right to resist that authority and not obey it. We, and by the way, we have a right to do so without being punished for doing it. Authority exists for the human person. Therefore, the common person has the right to resist that authority when the authority goes against moral and universal law and against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, an interesting question has come up throughout history then. When does violent resistance become necessary? That's where the real struggle is. I don't think there's a huge struggle about resisting authority. But when is it proper to use violent resistance against the government? Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor in Germany during Hitler's reign. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, by the way, a hero of mine, I, I love his writings and his life story. But Bonhoeffer was a pacifist, so he didn't really b believe in being too involved in government affairs. But he struggled deeply with this question during the reign of Hitler. He's like, here's a guy who may be a good example of when we should actually assassinate a government leader. And Bonhoeffer was arrested and sent to concentration camp because he became part of a group who attempted to assassinate Hitler. So when does violence become necessary? Well, in paragraph 401 of the compendium, 
the Pontifical Council spells out the church's stance on this. Like there are some some things that have to be satisfied first before a legitimate use of violence against the government can be enacted. And they said there are the church states there are times when you have to involve armed resistance to authority that is not legitimate. But you have to satisfy these conditions first. First of all, it says there is certain uh, certain grave and prolonged violation of fundamental rights. So is that government authority over an extended period of time enacting very serious and prolonged violations of human rights? Secondly, all other means of redress have been exhausted. You've tried everything possible to deal with this situation with this illegitimate authority. Third, uh, such resistance will not provoke worse disorders. Now, this is a very important one. We've seen this in our society. Will my, our violent resistance against the government actually create more disorder in society? So, for example... We've seen times where in trying to deal with an illegitimate government, we bomb that country only to plunge that country into further chaos. I was talking to a woman from Baghdad one time, and she had come to the United States for safety when we were uh, went to war with Iraq against Saddam Hussein. And she said, you know, she told me, she said, Michael, things were okay under Saddam Hussein. She said there was no homelessness People had jobs, people had cars, people had houses, and things were good. As long as you stayed in line, uh, you were not at risk. She said after the United States attacked Iraq, it has plunged into economic ruin, rampant homelessness, rampant uh, loss of jobs, unemployment, and so on. And then I was in Africa the last time I was in Kenya. I had somebody telling me that when we uh, attacked Libya. They said in Libya, it was, ha Libya had the greatest university education system in Africa. Everybody went there to get their education. It was a wealthy country. It was a stable country. And they said when the United States attacked Libya, it descended into chaos and has come to the point, they said, we don't think it'll ever recover. You see, we got to ask ourselves, does violent resistance, does it make sense for the larger society in an orderly way? The fourth is there is a well-founded hope of success. The church says you have to know that there's a very well-founded hope that this violent resistance will bring success. Or is it just going to create more failures? And then finally, number five, it is impossible reasonably to foresee any better solution other than violent resistance. So you got to put yourself to the test. When government goes out of bounds, what is the best course of action? And is there an actually peaceable way to deal with this? That's why in this podcast, I've encouraged you, you know, when there's somebody being oppressed, bring the oppressor and the oppressed to the table together because there might be a peaceful solution that we can come to. Now, the Pontifical Council in this part of chapter eight talks about uh, the justice system, the court system, and at length, the death penalty, which we'll talk about 
in a moment. But before we get into their discussion on the death penalty, let's talk about a just court system. I love these four points that the compendium brings out. Like, what does a just court system look like in a just political authority? The fact is, in a non-perfect society, unperfect society like we live in, there are people that are just going to do harmful things to citizens, and they need to be punished. And St. Paul says in the scriptures, that is one of the reasons why the government exists is to punish the bad guys. And so I like, <laughs> I like what the Pontifical Council lays out as four points of a just court system. And here's what it looks like. First of all, a just court system ensures fair and speedy trials. Ensures a trial is fair and it's speedy. They state that it that lengthy trials are unjust to society. It's just like the whole circus show of the uh, O.J. Simpson trial, nine months, was it? I can't remember. It was insane. Totally unjust and insane. A fair trial, a trial that's fair for the person who's being accused, right? If you're being accused of a crime, especially a serious crime, you want a fair trial because if you're innocent, you want that to be found out. <coughs> and if you're a victim and that person is guilty, you want a fair trial so that they are fairly punished. And tried. So a fair and a speedy trial. In other words, no goofing around. Let's just get this, get the investigation done. Get the investigation, make sure it's thorough, but also on a timely manner. Second, a just court system ensures proper compensation when a judge makes a wrong decision and punishes an innocent person. That has been known to happen. So when someone is unfairly punished or they are innocent, uh, then a judge who makes wrong decision, the courts must compensate that person well because of that. Third, a just court system ensures that the offender has a chance to reform and in, enter society again as a positive part of society. There was a guy in the Corinthian church in St. Paul's time who had uh, done some unjust things in the church at Corinth. And St. Paul says, I want you guys to cast that guy out of the community. Just abandon him for a while. Punish him. So the, and St. Paul says, so that his body may be punished, but his soul saved. And what St. Paul said is my goal is to reform this guy. And the guy reformed, he repented. He's like, man, I was wrong, 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 wrong. And you know, the Corinthian church leaders wouldn't let the guy back in the community. And St. Paul writes him again in second Corinthians and says, look, the guy, the guy's done his due diligence. He has, he has, um, reformed. So let them back in the community. And so a just prison system and a just court system, the goal should be that this person actually repents of what they've done. They reform and enter society as a healthy part of that society. And then finally, uh, a just court system ensures a just or a just political authority ensures a just prison system. You know, a just prison system is one where people are not tortured beyond what their crime deserves. They're not let off the hook easily because you want the punishment to fit the crime. But at the same time, you want them to have opportunities to understand how to be a healthy citizen. So you're in a just prison system. You want classes taught. 
This is what it's like to be a father. This is what it's like to be a husband. This is what it's like to be a good neighbor. You know, things like that. And go through, send them through trainings. Also, prisoners, all prisoners should be working. And not working for wages. Just working because you need to learn how to work and be productive. So you're not wasting your time in prison. But let's finish with a healthy, healthy discussion on the death penalty. Shall we? The convenient, the, this is, I'm going to tell you I have a dog in the fight when it comes to death penalty. So I cannot give an unbiased view. My sister was murdered years ago and the man is not in prison today. Uh, the compendium and the Catholic church is opposed to the death penalty. I am not opposed to it. I am in sharp disagreement with the church on this point, but I'm saying that to show you that in my discussion today, I'm biased because of what's happened in my life, but I'm going to attempt to give you a neutral look at the death penalty as much as I can. Now, by the way, disagreeing with the church on this point does not make me a Catholic and bad standing with the church. That's one thing. A lot of people think that to be Catholic means you're required to think and do a certain way. There are on certain points a requirement there. But your view on the death penalty is not one of those requirements. <laughs> By the way, do you want to know what one of the things that can put you in bad staying with the church is supporting capitalism and supporting socialism? A lot of people don't realize that, that it's actually considered a very grave sin to support capitalism and to support socialism in the church because of their unjust treatments of citizens. But that's for another discussion. So it's okay, but a lot of people don't realize there's a lot of room within the Catholic church to question church leadership and to challenge church leadership if you do it with one goal in mind so that you can come to know the truth. All right. A lot of the truths that church leaders have come to understand has been the saints challenging them on their own thinking. Doesn't mean, and they didn't do it in a violent way. They did it in a very saintly way, but they still did it. The reason why we have uh, Carmelites uh, uh, convents that are in order today is because of St. Teresa of Avila confronting church leadership on what was happening in the convents in her day. So, see? It all works together. It's okay to question. It's not okay to demean church leaders, and it's not okay to disobey them. It is okay to challenge them. That's how we come to the truth, and they're okay with that. They're, I've challenged priests on things before, and they've showed me so much grace on that. But however, the real question when it comes to the death penalty is not my opinion. The real question is, is the death penalty just? And I'm not going to say yes or no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you from various resources I've read, various people I've talked to that have various views on the death penalty. I'm going to show you what each side, those who are for it and those who are against it, what they've said. And then I want you to email me. The email will be given at the end of this podcast. Let me know your thoughts. It's a healthy discussion we actually need to have as a society because the death penalty is a huge uh, uh, point that we need to come to agreement on within our adjust court system. Now I'm going to talk first of all about arguments in favor of the death penalty. Again, these are not my arguments. These are 
from various sources I've read and, and had discussions with people on, and I'm going to show you arguments against the death penalty. So first of all, people who are for the death penalty say it is not right that innocent people should have their lives taken while the murderers get to live, eat, sleep, and go about their life, even if it is in prison. It's not right that innocent people lost their lives and this person does not lose their life. They get to go about their life. Uh, you know, they're basically saying that, yeah, the person's in prison, but uh, they're still living, they're still eating. They're still telling jokes with their buddies in prison. They're still exercising. They're still, whatever, playing miniature golf. I was talking to a person at the Oregon State Penitentiary this week, and they were talking about playing miniature golf there. Okay, so huh, there you go. Number two, proponents of the death penalty will say not having the death penalty does not allow for victims' families to heal and see justice happen for their loved ones. They will say that seeing the person experience the same ending that their loved one had to experience who was innocent, that that kind of helps the healing process get started. I know in ancient societies in Israel that when the death penalty was carried out, and they usually did it through stoning, uh... Did you know that it was the families, not the government, but rather the families that stoned the person to death? So they said, oh, that gives a you know, chance for families to feel some sense of justice. Now, the third thing that proponents of the death penalty will say is that reform is not an option for the one who purposely and violently took a human life. Uh, they'll often say that person's beyond reform. Uh, fourth, the death penalty is taught in scripture. People will say, well, the death penalty is taught in scripture. I mean, in the Old Testament, it talks about carrying out the death penalty and gives actually details how to do that. St. Paul in the New Testament uh, says that the government does not carry the sword in vain. So with that, proponents will say, well, it's taught in both the Old and New Testament. Number five, the death penalty causes those who would commit murder to think twice. So what they'll say is that if everybody who murders is executed, then if somebody wants to murder, they're going to think twice because they think, well, if I get caught, I'm going to, it's automatic, I'm dead. So it may cause some people. Now in the book of Proverbs in the Bible, it says that a fool is beaten on the back and the wise man learns from that. So a wise person will observe somebody being beaten or being executed and say, I think I'll stay in line. Yeah, they might have a point. Now on the other side, people who are against the death penalty, their five points that I wrote down is that first of all, putting to death a murderer cuts off their chance to reform and avoid hell. So they, what they will say, especially if they're religious in nature, they'll say the person who murders somebody is going to hell when they die. But if we execute them, that will ensure that happens and that will cut off their chance to repent and reform. Uh, I know that 
a lot of prison chaplains will bring out this point because that's their job as prison chaplains to help people reform their ways. And the second argument uh, that I wrote down from people who oppose the death penalty say the death penalty is unjust. Now, strangely, I've never actually heard an explanation of this point, just an assertion of the point. It's unjust. So I'm not really sure why it's unjust, the death penalty. So if you uh, believe the death penalty unjust, feel free to email me uh, and tell me your explanation of why it's unjust, because I'd be interested in that discussion. It's not that I necessarily disagree with this point. I just don't understand why it's asserted and never really explained. Number three, uh, people will say the death penalty cuts off the person's chance to work out their karma before they die, which is also why murder is wrong for the same reason. So in Hindu thought, <clears throat> the spiritual masters will say the reason why murder is a sin is because the person who is murdered is in this life to work out their karma and come into unity with God. And if they're murdered, boom, they're stuck to have to live another lifetime because their chance in this life got cut short. And they'll say the death penalty is wrong for the wrong reason because the person who did the murder has really heaped up a lot of bad karma on themselves for murdering somebody. If you put them to death, their chance is going to be cut short to try to overcome that and to reform their way. But it's kind of the same way the Christian thought on that, just said in a different way. Number four, it does nothing to deter people and is costly for taxpayers. So those um, who are against the death penalty will say it does nothing to actually detour people who are determined to murder and is costly for taxpayers. Again, I've never heard it explained, just asserted. So again, if you want to email me, if you're against the death penalty and you believe that the death penalty does nothing to deter people and is actually costly to, to taxpayers, please uh, email me and give me a detailed explanation why um, so that we can understand this point a little bit better because I've never heard it explained again, only asserted. Uh, and, and if you do email me, explain to me how the death penalty is more costly than somebody spending their life in prison. Um, I'm not saying that you're wrong in thinking this. I just, again, I'm, I like to see facts um, when things are asserted. And then number five, People will say, well, the death penalty is the same violent murder that is supposedly being opposed by society. So why does a society oppose murder but support the death penalty, which is murder in itself? So I've heard that a lot. Uh, again, I think that's, in a, in a sense, that could be a valid point. So those are the points for the death penalty. Interesting discussion because... How we come to terms with the death penalty is, is part of a just society. So lots of stuff to talk about today. What a tough discussion today. I think anytime you talk about a political authority, it can be a really tough discussion. But there are so many thoughts on political authority, and that is why we're taking our time to go through this chapter eight. Most people hate politics and cannot stand politicians. It's election season. As I record this podcast and man, you know, oh, the ads that you see this person slamming that person, you know how they darken the screen to make it and they show their opponent and the opponent's depressed because of a darkened screen. I'm like, I'm so done with that screenshot. <laughs> but yeah, it gets vicious at, at election time. 
But however, political authority is a reality in this world. But here's the thing. God, the creator, is the ultimate example of authority. For God exercises his authority as creator with love, gentleness, and humility. And that is what real authority looks like. God blesses both the wicked and the righteous. Jesus said that the Father in heaven gives rain to the field of the righteous and the wicked farmer. God causes the sun to shine on the field of the righteous and the wicked farmer. God never tires of calling the wicked back to himself. God has compassion and truly works for the good of all. God also ensures that we each are corrected when it is needed some corrections built into creation are very harsh while some are mild. Why? Because God is fair. God is truly fair and God is just. God is the just judge. Jesus teaches us that. God always leads from true knowledge and perfect wisdom. God knows all the facts in any given moment, so God judges from that perfect knowledge. May we be given political leaders who do the same thing. May we have political leaders that promote citizens as they create a just society right where they are. You've been listening to Common Sense on Social Justice with your host, Michael Davis. A common sense and fresh perspective to creating justice where you are. Share your comments and questions with Michael by emailing sjcommonsense at gmail.com. That's sjcommonsense at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend. You can support this vital mission of evangelization through materdayradio.com or the Hail Mary media app. And thank you for helping us lead souls to Jesus through the Blessed Virgin Mary.